from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. The Moore v. Harper case before the Supreme Court could give the far right in the United States what they cannot get through fair and free elections, and that is permanent rule. We speak to veteran activist Brian Becker. This is what Trump wanted to do in 2020. That's what January 6, 2021, the insurrection and dispersal of Congress was all about. And it would mean, effectively, the end of one person, one vote. And as the oligarchy in Peru has succeeded in their year-long effort to oust leftist President Pedro Castillo, we go to our archives to hear voices of Castillo supporters rallying here outside the Organization of American States during the summer of 2021. The rally was just days after Castillo's win over Kiko Fujimori, daughter of longtime Peruvian dictator. From day one, Castillo's supporters had to defend him against fascist attempts to overturn his win. The people that live in the mountains and the jungle of Peru, they voted for Pedro Castillo. They don't want any more neoliberalism. All that and much more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital for December 9th, 2022. I'm Esther Averam. Well, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments this week for the case Moore v. Harper, brought by North Carolina Republicans to challenge the North Carolina Supreme Court striking down a severely partisan gerrymandered congressional map. These state legislators are arguing that their state high court has no standings to strike down the gerrymandered map and that only the state legislature has the authority to make rules for congressional elections under the so-called independent state legislature theory. The fringe theory interprets the U.S. Constitution in giving only state legislatures control over the regulation of federal elections, with no role for state courts, constitutions, governors, or election commissions. It is this theory that former President Donald Trump attempted to use in his effort to overturn the results of the 2020 election, with Republican politicians in at least four states sending alternate slates of electors to be certified on January 6, 2021. During the oral arguments, questions and comments from the court's far-right majority indicated some interest in supporting the basis for the independent state legislature theory. Outside the court, hundreds rallied in support of voting rights, which could be eviscerated with the court's ruling in the case. No voting rights! No peace! No voting rights! No peace! Thank you to Nicole Russell for her reporting outside the court. More on Moore v. Harper after headlines with veteran activist Brian Becker. Supporters of Peru's deposed president Pedro Castillo continued to protest Thursday, one day after Castillo was removed and what his supporters referred to as a legislative coup. Castillo remained in police custody of the National Police after being arrested after he attempted to dissolve Congress and declare a state of emergency before facing a third impeachment vote by the far-right majority Congress. From day one of Castillo's term, the legislature has stymied all of his program for promised social reforms and has leveled the same kind of lawfare type of corruption charges used to fraudulently target South American left leaders. Most notably, former and president-elect of Brazil, 
Lula Anasia da Silva. On Tuesday, December 6th, Argentina's former two-term president and current vice president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, was sentenced to six years in prison on what she says are trumped-up corruption charges. She plans to appeal. Castillo has now been replaced by his vice president, Dina Bolarte, who was sworn in after Congress went on and impeached Castillo. The U.S. Embassy in Peru was quick to show support for Bulate and the majority right-wing Congress. In opposition to this year's U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit being held here in Washington December 13th through the 15th, Pan-Africanists are also descending on the U.S. Capitol for a week of in-person and virtual actions to highlight the role of U.S. imperialism in fomenting war and exploitation on the continent. On Saturday, December 10th from 9 a.m. to 5.30 p.m., the Global Pan-African People's Intervention on the U.S.-African Leaders Summit is being held at Howard University School of Social Work Auditorium, and virtually at panafricancongress.org. On Sunday, December 11th, there will be the African People's Forum, beginning at 1 p.m. at the Eritrean Community Center, 2254 24th Street in Northeast Washington. Registration and more information for the Sunday, December 11th event is at africanpeoplesforum.org. And then finally, starting Monday, December 12th at 6 p.m., the Black Alliance for Peace will kick off their Africa Anti-Imperialist Week of Action. One of the conveners for Saturday's People's Intervention, the activist and scholar Horace Campbell, gave Voices with Vision on WPFW Pacifica Radio his analysis of U.S.-Africa relations in 2022. The most important thing we have to get through this is the fact that the United States is on the defensive after the killing of George Floyd, after the International Commission of Inquiry into police violence against black people in the United States of America, and after the United States has been exposed for using African peoples as football and making promises to them. And you rightly talked about the Comprodors because in 2014, Barack Obama, as president, called a U.S.-Africa Leader Summit. And they made all kinds of proposals there. Power Africa, helping Africa, climate, food and security in Africa. None of these have been realized. The only permanent relationship between the United States and Africa that is enduring is the United States military destruction and destabilization of Africa. And so the U.S. strategy and this summit is another backdoor effort to strengthen the United States Africa command in Africa and to strengthen the United States relationship with Europe in Africa. Again, the websites for the various actions countering the U.S.-Africa Leader Summit are for December 10th, the panafricancongress.org, for December 11th, africanpeoplesforum.org, and for the week beginning December 12th, blackallianceforpeace.com.
In culture and media this week, WNBA star Brittany Griner was freed from a Russian prison in a one-to-one prisoner swap with Russian citizen Victor Boot. Russia accused and convicted Griner for illegal possession of cannabis oil, and the U.S. arrested Boot in 2008 in Thailand and accused and convicted him of smuggling weapons. Griner's wife, Sherelle, spoke Thursday at the White House. As we celebrate BG being home, we do understand that there are still people out here who are enduring what I endured the last nine months of missing tremendously their loved ones. So thank you, everybody, for your support. And today it's just a happy day for me and my family. So um, I'm going to smile right now. (laughs) Um, Thank you. Also this week, after the Reverend Raphael Warnock defeated former football star Herschel Walker to be reelected to the U.S. Senate, a TikTok video went viral of a Warnock staffer dancing at the victory celebration. Music chosen by the video creator named Tristan Silva was not the music playing at the Reverend's event. As of Thursday afternoon, the video had been viewed more than a half million times on the Twitter account of Not Capping America. And finally, back in D.C., Chantel James attended a talk on the intersection of literature and reproductive rights. At Creative Grounds in Northwest D.C. on Tuesday, the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University held a talk on Black reproduction in slavery's afterlife. It was a conversation between novelist Dolan Perkins Valdez, current chair of the Penn Faulkner Foundation, whose book Take My Hand was released this year, and scholar of Black reproductive politics, Sarah Clark Kaplan. Perkins Valdez contextualized questions of abortion and others as they are explored in her most recent novel. My main character does terminate a pregnancy, and though she is traumatized about it, she has no regrets either. And I had to really think about that. You're in the deep south, the Bible Belt, 1973. Even if you didn't have regrets, you would have shame. The dialogue moderated by scholar, doula, and birth equity advocate Dr. Molly Collins drew deep connections between control of black women's bodies dating back to the experiences of the enslaved and political terrain of the present day. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. The Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University maintains an archive of their events on their website, american.edu forward slash centers forward slash anti-racism. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. One, two, three.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. So on Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard arguments on the case of Moore v. Harper. And it's a case that we've talked about before on On the Ground. And it's a case that the Supreme Court took to consider the merits of something called the independent state legislature theory. And people who really believe in this theory basically say, or the case would imply, that state legislatures all across the country have independent and almost unfettered control over the elections in their state without judicial review, without any rules from the governor or any state commissions that might set up rules, say, for example, under a pandemic. And we talked about this case in connection with other voting rights cases and other cases that the Supreme Court is taking up this term, all in connection with what seems to be a very right-wing thrust of this far-right Supreme Court. And here to talk to me about Wednesday's arguments and the case in general is Brian Becker, friend of the show, host of the Socialist Program, and also national director of the Answer Coalition, which we know is Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Thank you very much, Esther. Well, Brian, I guess I should just get your first reaction to the arguments. They were very detailed and somehow really didn't touch on some of the important aspects of the case or related them to the 2020 election or Trump's efforts to, you know, use states and state AGs and to steal the election. But none of that was really brought up. And so I want to get your thoughts and and your impression of that. Right. You can't listen to an oral argument of the Supreme Court without becoming exceptionally frustrated unless you're a lawyer or a lawyer who argues before the Supreme Court, because the arguments are couched in such esoteric language where the real consequences of a legal case are barely mentioned. And so you're lost in detail. People don't really understand the dimension or the magnitude or the significance of the case. So Wednesday's oral arguments were no different. Uh, And as a consequence, because Esther, you and I and others know about the significance of Moore v. Harper, it was frustrating because people won't really get it if they just listen to the oral arguments. But Moore v. Harper is, as you said, a case about a rigged North Carolina congressional map and deals with the concept called the independent state legislature theory. It's a dangerous theory. It argues that the Constitution gives state legislatures unchecked authority over matters related to elections. If the Supreme Court accepts the totality of the independent state legislature theory, and that's the argument being made by Moore, who is the uh, speaker for the Republican Party in North Carolina state legislature, if they were to accept the independent state legislature theory in its totality, it will give a license to right-wing state legislatures to replace the slate of electors chosen by voters in presidential elections with an alternative slate of their own. This is what Trump wanted to do in 2020. Mm -hmm. That's what January 6, 2021, the insurrection and dispersal of Congress was all about. And it would mean effectively the end of one person, one vote, meaning in the state of Georgia or Arizona or Pennsylvania, the places where Trump 
narrowly lost the electoral college because he narrowly lost the popular vote in those states, right-wing state legislatures in those states could say in the if there was an argument that the election had been corrupted by fraud, as of course the Trump forces maintained, that they could rule that they would choose the viable or legitimate slate of electors and no one, not the state courts, not the state Supreme Court, not the state constitution, and not the U.S. courts could impact their decision. They would have final decision. Now, if the court, Esther, accepts a sort of a limited version of the independent state legislature theory, it would still mean it would be a gateway for an expansion of racist, right-wing gerrymandering in states all across the country. And why is that important? Just so people in the immediate sense understand it. In North Carolina, the electorate is pretty split. Uh, The state went a little bit more Democratic than Republican in the last election. But if the state gerrymandering racist scheme were to be maintained, then of the 13 congressional districts in the state of North Carolina, about 10 or 11 or even as many as 12 would go to the Republicans. In Alabama, there's another important case coming before the Supreme Court in this session where the argument is being made that in the state of Alabama, where the electorate is about 33% African-American, but only there's only one African-American congressperson out of the seven congressional seats, that that too is a consequence of racist gerrymandering from this state legislature in Alabama. So Yeah, that's ever- Merritt versus Milligan. We We actually were able to speak to Evan Milligan in that case outside the court earlier this year. Yeah. So at the minimum, the reason Moore v. Harper is important is that minimally, if the court were to uphold this independent state legislature theory in some version, maybe not the maximum version, which would allow state legislatures to basically decide who the electoral slate would be. But even in the lesser version, it would have a huge impact on the enfranchisement or black empowerment in this country which the right wing has always considered to be a great threat to the maintenance of their racist right wing program. So that's the minimum danger. The maximum danger is that we could have a change in the way government is formed such that there could be, in spite of whatever the election outcome is, a permanent right wing government. So those are the stakes. Right. Now, I know that you produced a pamphlet about not only about Morvey Harper, but putting this case in the context of other decisions of the Supreme Court this year, including uh, overturning Roe and other things that really haven't gotten the same type of attention in terms of the the ability of the government to control emissions, the power of the limiting the power of the Environmental Protection Agency, which is there to protect us certain implications for your Miranda rights, gun safety, lots of decisions by what is proving to be a very radical Supreme Court. So I know that a lot of people are watching these cases and are very concerned in our audience. So talk a little bit about your pamphlet and how people can get it. Sure. The pamphlet is called The Supreme Court versus Democracy, Moore v. Harper, an Assault on Democratic Rights. 
Uh, I am the author. It's based on a, it's an expansion of a speech I made, the opening speech at the Fifth Party Congress of the Party for Socialism and Liberation back in July. So it's available. People can buy it. They can go to Liberation Store, which you can find at liberationnews.org, and then look at the tab for Liberation Store. You can purchase the pamphlet there. It's four ninety five. It's not a long pamphlet. It's about 35 pages long. But it details what's at stake with Morvey Harper and also documents or tries to put into historical perspective the moment that we're living in right now. And as you said, Esther, the conclusion is that the moment in, that we're living in right now is characterized by an effort by the right wing, the most right wing sectors of the U.S. capitalist ruling class to roll back the democratic rights and social, economic and political reforms that were the consequence of the workers movement in the 1930s and then the black civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, the women's rights movement. Uh, that led to Roe v. Wade, the LGBTQ movement against discrimination and bigotry that finally achieved marriage equality, not to mention the fact that as a consequence of people's movements to mitigate climate catastrophe, some parts of the government, like the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, have tried to limit emissions from corporate polluters such that it would mitigate pollution and global warming, all of these things that the right wing of the ruling class considers to be like an impediment or an obstruction on capital, the rights of capital to maximize profit above all other considerations. They're trying to get rid of these things. And so the thesis of my article, my, my pamphlet is that when the Supreme Court succeeded in the Dobbs decision to get rid of Roe v. Wade, which was eviscerating ending abortion rights as a nationwide right, they considered that to be a milestone. The right wing has been organizing against abortion rights for 50 years, not because they care that much about abortion. I mean, abortion really wasn't the big issue in the beginning of the right wing's counteroffensive that's gone on now for decades, kind of quietly in the background through think tanks or organizations like ALEC or the Federalist Society. Their real goal was to push back against all of the achievements that were the consequence of the black civil rights movement. But they didn't want to have a direct confrontation with black America. There's too many people. It's too strong. People are too militant in the sense that they're not going to go back. So they sort of adopted a wedge issue, abortion, which could be considered an ethical issue or a religious issue. Not really, but that's how they could frame it. In order to begin this right-wing counteroffensive against all of the rights that came from the 50s and 60s and earlier the 30s. So my thesis in the pamphlet is that the Supreme Court was so excited that they succeeded at getting rid of a popular right. Popular, by the way, abortion rights had probably majority support in some version, even among Republican voting women and girls, of course, that since they got away with that, they could get rid of these other rights that have really been more important and more impactful on the, on corporate America's agenda. And so now they're going for it. And so the Supreme Court, you know, took the Moore v. Harper case. I mean, it's really quite a case because at least four justices have to accept the case before it comes before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court only hears about 70 to 100 cases a year, and there's tens of thousands that are filed. So if they took the case, it's because they wanted to. They wanted to say something about it. 
And when you think about what actually happened, the state Supreme Court in North Carolina, uh, not a liberal Supreme Court, said that the racist gerrymandering scheme was so out of control in North Carolina that they had to go back to the drawing board. And then the Republicans argued, no, only we, the state legislatures, according to the U.S. Constitution, have any authority for Mm. the Supreme Court of the United States to take the case. If they accepted independent state legislature theory, just think of what that would mean. The Voting Rights Act, all other protections, early voting, mail-in ballots, the way congressional districts are structured, everything that has been a minor reform expanding democracy since the 50s and 60s would be now on the chopping block. So we put out the pamphlet. Uh, People can buy it. I hope they do buy it. It's a quick read, but it also gives sort of a historical perspective about the 50s and 60s and what was achieved and how hard it was. You know, the country always pats itself on the back and says, see, yeah, we had problems, but we had the Civil Rights Act. We had problems, but now we had the Voting Rights Act. We had problems when women couldn't vote, but now they can. The, you know, the country and the mythology of the country is it's always patting itself on the back for achieving some modicum of democratic reforms. But at the time those reforms were being fought for, they were met with the fiercest resistance Racist violence, violence. I mean, extreme efforts, even the passage of the Civil Rights Act, which ended apartheid, the end of apartheid in America, not South Africa, in the United States, that was only passed after a 60 day, 24 hours, seven day a week filibuster in the Senate by the Republicans who didn't want to pass that Civil Rights Act. And that was the first time that the Senate ever passed the Civil Rights Act. So you can see all of this. The story that's not told is that there was fierce resistance within the ruling class of America against any, even the most basic democratic reform. So now they feel because of Trump, because of the right wing mobilizations that are going on in the country, because the Supreme Court is stacked uh, as a consequence of this Republican federalist uh, conspiracy for the last 30 years to pack the courts. They have they feel like their time has come to roll back the clock. And and now we're in this fierce fight for democratic rights. And the other and final point that I want to make on this, Esther, is that when you look at history and you could include this in American history, sometimes it's when the right wing overreaches. Sometimes it's when the right wing goes too far, when they become too emboldened, when they become too confident, too cocky, too sure of themselves and they try to go for it and end all rights, it has the opposite effect. And you could even see that where the Supreme Court and the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 or the Dred Scott decision of 1857, they were sure that not only was slavery and the system of slavery going to be maintained, but it was going to expand to the West and maybe to the North. But by this overreach, it triggered a countervailing forces. And so seven years after or eight years after Dred Scott, Slavery actually was legally brought to an end. Of course, 600 or 700,000 people died to, to end it. But my point is that, you know, when we look at the historical processes, they're very dynamic, very dialectical. And even though the right wing is on the march, we are saying in this pamphlet, it could have the opposite impact if we, the people, are politically aware enough of what's going on, if we're mobilized, if we're not sort of wringing our own hands if instead we are struggling and fighting, 
this could actually create an opportunity for a return to the expansion of democracy similar to what happened in the 50s and 60s. Right. Well, I'm listening to you talking about overreach and I can't help but compare it to all the premonitions, predictions of a red wave and how I thought it was so ridiculous given the fact that these were people who were making moves like this, overturning Roe v. Wade and threatening to overturn uh, student loan forgiveness, you know, what little was received. And also, you know, whispers about curtailing Social Security or Medicare, you know. So I'm thinking, why would people who are putting forward these types of proposals and these types of actions think that people are going to rush to the polls and vote for them? Yeah. You know, I want to just jump in. I want to just jump in there, Esther, and just reaffirm the point that you're making. The reason the red wave became a let's call it a red trickle. Uh, And the reason the election didn't turn out the way the right wing thought it would was because of the Dobbs decision. The ending of abortion rights brought out young women, women of all ages, but young women in particular uh, who came to the polls, who were the, you know, when you look at the, the demographics and the sort of granular sort of examination of what happened in the election, it was women and girls, you know, older girls, girls who are 18 or <laughs> older and able, young women who are were voting, uh, who really turned the tide. And that was because of the right wing's attack on abortion. So let's take that not in a Pollyannish way, but to say, look, we can fight back. We can actually turn all of this around. It's in our power. The only reason the right wing is on the march is our side has been a little bit too quiet. So we need to make some noise. All right. Well, we're making noise here on On the Ground. My guest has been Brian Becker, host of the Socialist Program and National Director of the Answer Coalition. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Here in the last month of the year, I want to especially thank our Patreon supporters at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show for your support. If you would like to support the show, if you rely on it, love the show, but you haven't yet signed up, please go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show to sign up to be a subscriber for as little as three dollars a month. You can also do a one time donation there and donations there as well as on PayPal or any other way you give are all tax deductible. We are not for profit organization, totally grassroots, independent funded. I'm not paid by any station or Pacifica or anybody. And so we really do rely on your support to produce the show. And also people who do year end giving, again, your donations are tax deductible and um, you can go to the website on the org for all the ways you can give on PayPal, the address, if you want to send a check and, so just giving that push during December to uh, encourage everyone to support the show. I so appreciate it.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, supporters of Peru's deposed President Pedro Castillo continued to protest Thursday, one day after Castillo was removed in what his supporters referred to as a legislative coup. Castillo remained in police custody of the National Police after being arrested after he attempted to dissolve Congress and declare a state of emergency before facing a third impeachment vote by the far-right majority Congress. From day one of Castillo's term, the legislature has stymied all of his programs of promised social reform and has leveled the same type of lawfare corruption charges used to fraudulently target South American left leaders. Castillo has now been replaced by his vice president, Dino Bolarte, who was sworn in after Congress impeached Castillo. The U.S. Embassy in Peru was quick to show support for Bolarte and the majority right-wing Congress. Well, for many of Castillo's supporters, this week's dramatic events felt like deja vu. When On the Ground reported outside the Organization of American States here in D.C. on June 26, 2021, Peruvians and their supporters celebrated Castillo's victory, but were already defending him against fascist attempts to overturn his win. El pueblo ya habló. Ya ganó. El pueblo ya habló. Castillo ya ganó. Thank you everybody so much for coming out. We just want to we just want to get the message out that the indigenous vote matters. Right? The indigenous vote matters. There is no evidence of fraud. There's multiple countries that already overlooked the election. There's no evidence of fraud. But Keiko Fujimori does not want to step down. For those of you who don't know, she's the daughter of a dictator, a right-wing dictator. She's going to implement more right-wing policies in Peru, more neoliberalism, so that Peru's natural resources can be privatized even more. And then the multinationals, the Western multinationals, will profit more off of Peru's resources. Now, the people that live in the mountains and the jungle of Peru, they know how they're being exploited. They voted for Pedro Castillo. They don't want any more neoliberalism. They don't want any more dictatorship under Keiko Fujimori, who had the entire mainstream media in Peru campaigning for her. Not only that, but the JNPE, the organization that's supposed to officially announce the elections, has not officially announced the elections yet. Even though all the votes were already officially counted by the ONPE, there has been no official announcement. It's a complete conflict of interest for her to have supporters of her to be in the JNPE. Fujimori nunca más. Fujimori nunca más. Fujimori nunca más. Por justicia y dignidad. Fujimori nunca más. So there's two reasons why this election is so important to me. Number one is because it's my blood. I'm Peruvian. Like these are my people. I really care about this. I don't want my people to be exploited by Western powers. Number two, this directly affects me and all of you because as these Western corporations get more powerful, then they have more power to buy off politicians, they have more money to buy off these politicians, and so they can implement more right-wing policies here in the States 
that aren't gonna benefit you. We're seeing an increase in debt, we're in uh, student debt, we're seeing increase in price for medical, uh, medical care. It's because these Western oligarchs are becoming more and more powerful as they enrich themselves from the natural resources of the global south, like Peru. That's right. So I can't thank you guys enough for coming out. I truly appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. It means so much for me and other Peruvian people for you guys to care about our elections. Fujimori nunca más. Fujimori nunca más. Castillo ya ganó, el pueblo ya habló. Castillo ya ganó, el pueblo ya habló. Thank you guys so much. El pueblo ya votó, Castillo ya ganó, el pueblo ya votó. Castillo ya ganó, el pueblo ya votó. Castillo ya ganó, por justicia y dignidad. Fujimori nunca más. Por justicia y dignidad. Fujimori nunca más. Por justicia y dignidad. Fujimori nunca más. Viva el Perú. Viva el Perú, carajo. Can you translate the two, the two main chants that you all were doing? Uh, the two, oh. It was like two or three main chants. Uh, the, peop, the people already voted. Castillo, Castillo already won. Right. Uh, the I people don't... already voted. Castillo already won. Yeah. Okay. For memory, justice, and dignity. Fujimori never again. For memory, justice, and dignity. Fujimori never again. Yes. Yes. And That's the it. other one is... The OAS has already said it, uh, Castillo already won. My name is Sean Blackman. I'm here with the Answer Coalition, which stands for Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. And our reason for being here today is simple. We are asking that democracy inside Peru be respected. We're asking that the people's will inside Peru be respected. We're asking that the sovereignty of that country be respected. And we are here to say no to the interference of capital, of corporate profit, and of US imperialism in Peru and in Latin America in general. And we know that the uh, US ambassador to Peru who worked for the right wing Mike Pompeo has cast her lot with the right-wing Fujimori camp. And so Washington's interest in what's happening in Peru is clear. It's part and parcel of the United States government ongoing project to try to push back any progressive movement or any progressive element inside Latin America so we can maintain control of the region. And this institution, the Organization of American States, is one of the major components of how the U.S. and the West maintains control over the hemisphere and over the Americas. Oh. Okay, yeah, all right, cool. We're gonna get some translation and crack it off. And whenever I'm in front of the Organization of American States, I always like to point out how appropriate it is that there's a statue yeah. of Isabella 
in front of this building. Mm -hmm. This is the lady who helped fund and organize the expedition of Christopher Columbus, who then set in motion what would come to be the colonization, the genocide and the enslavement that would create the Americas as we know it today. My friends, that is the same dynamic that is playing out in Peru right now. Sean dice que todas las veces que viene aquí frente a la organización de Estados Americanos se cuestiona cómo es posible que estemos aquí y que haya esta estatua Isabel la Católica que es la que financió la invasión de nuestras Américas que ha convertido eh, a este continente en lo que es ahora en haber sido eh, este, despojado de sus recursos y en haberle quitado eh, estos recursos a la población que estaba aquí. Thank you. And the last thing I'll say is that the only way that we'll be able to successfully push for democracy in Peru and for Pedro Castillo to be recognized as the president of Peru in an election that he won fair and square against a person whose father is sitting in prison right now for human rights abuses. See, this, this is it's not just an election. This is about the direction of Peru as a country. There is so much writing for the people of Peru on what happens here. And so as people of conscience and as people here in the beating heart of world imperialism, we have a particular duty to push back against this because the attacks on Peru, the attacks on Latin America are carried out by the U.S. government in our name, but without our consent. And we're here to say no more. So we have to continue to organize. We have to continue to do what we're doing right now. And we have to continue to fight U.S. imperialism in Latin America and wherever we find it. Thank you. Wow. 
that's why we were so that's singing like about somebody it. saying black lives matter song is a terrorist song exactly <laughs> Exactly. Wow, wow. Yeah. Okay, and what's the name of that song? Eh, Flor de Retama. Flower of Retama. Flower it's, of, is, is Retama a place? Uh, no, I think it's a... Retama is... No, 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 it's a flower. Yeah, but yeah, I don't I don't think that it's a... Well, we don't think that it's a place. So but say, say the name of the song again. Flor, F-L-O-R, de, D-E, Retama. R-E-T-A-M-A. And that's just the name of the flower, like a yellow, it's a yellow it's flower. It's a yellow flower, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. and it's a indigenous flower of a certain area. Yeah, yeah, Ayacucho, which is also the area where the Shining Path was uh, created. Right, right. Yeah, so historically in Peru for the past 30 years, they've been like uh, criminalizing working class uh, indigenous populations because of terrorism because they whenever they don't want to listen to their demands they call them terrorism and using this kind of fact that the shining path which is a which was a guerrilla group uh, and they killed also thousands of indigenous people uh, with that excuse they yeah they they criminalize them right right they, right they don't listen to them and and this was another attempt to do it like right. saying that the song that they sing it's a terrorist song which right, is right. completely the opposite right exactly. it's, it's a song exactly. against state terrorism exactly yeah. exactly against terrorism yeah My name is Franco. I'm the host of the, the show called Frank Analysis. It's on YouTube, Rockfin, and Odyssey. And we're out here just to secure Peru's elections because Keiko Fujimori has been has just not been accepting the results. Uh, she's a right-wing candidate. She's the daughter of a dictator. And Castillo is a left-wing candidate. He ran for the party called Free Peru, Peru Libre. And Peruvians have a lot of fear with communism given their history. However. That's not what uh, Pedro Castillo is. And even if he was, it's not like he's trying to initiate any, any violence or anything. So the public spoke, they all voted for Castillo. Peru has secure elections. It was overseen by multiple countries. There's no evidence of fraud, although Keiko Fujimori is claiming that there is fraud. So she's really postponing this. And if it reaches July 28th, then there, there could be a, another election. So we're trying to secure that because the Peruvians already voted and those votes need to be respected. Okay, so when you say if it extends to July 28th, you mean the fact that they haven't certified it or made it official? Yeah, it'll, it'll become a constitutional crisis for Peru. 
Um, so there won't be an official president. So then they'd have to go through, they'd have to have another election if that were the case. Okay, all right. So who has to uh, certify the election? The JNE has to certify the election, and that's in Peru. Already 100% of the votes were counted by the ONPE. Um, yeah, 100% of the votes were passed, but the JNPE has not officially an, um, announced the winner. And there's members in JNPE that supported Keiko, and they, they're not supposed to do that. That's a conflict of interest. Okay. All right. So what can people in the U.S. do? Uh, share, share, you know, interviews like this. Uh, share live streams like the ones that are being conducted now. Share the work of Fiorella Isabel, who was on the ground. Uh, she's from the Convo Couch, and she's also a fellow member of the MCSC network, as, as well as um, that's the network that I'm a part of. Uh, independent media, share that information to people so they can know what's going on. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. And Franco of Frank Analysis will have the last word on today's show. He was speaking to us on June 26, 2021, here in D.C. outside the Organization of American States. Peruvians and their supporters celebrated the victory of Pedro Castillo that day, but were already defending him against fascist attempts to overturn his win. This week, he was ousted and arrested by the far-right Congress in Peru. This is On the Ground on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. We're on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Averam. Our website and archive of all of our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Averam. Special thank you to all of our supporters on patreon.com at on the ground show the music we played this hour included let's start with ginger baker by fela kuti truth don't die by Femi kuti and our theme music is voodoo child by Jimi hendrix i'm esther Ivarum. until next time take good care and keep raising your voice peace <laughs>